The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. And a problem we need to solve in this country is police killings of unarmed civilians. You know, the Washington Post has maintained a database of police shootings every year since 2015. And you can summarize their findings as, and I'm going to quote, Despite the unpredictable events that lead to fatal shootings, police nationwide have shot and killed almost the same number of people annually, nearly 1,000, since the Post began its project. Probability theory may offer an explanation. It holds that the quantity of rare events in huge populations tends to remain stable absent major societal changes, such as a fundamental shift in police culture or extreme restrictions on gun ownership. End of quote. The Post's analysis finds that with 265 such incidents to date in 2021, it appears that we're on par with prior years. And as in prior years, the post-compilation demonstrates a continuing pattern around these shootings. Although it, excuse me, quote, although half of the people shot and killed by police are white. Let me repeat that. Although half of the people shot and killed by police are white. Black Americans are shot at a disproportionate rate. They account for less than 13% of the U.S. population, but they are killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. Hispanic Americans are also killed by police at a disproportionate rate. And that's the end of that quote. A third sad fact these killings share year over year is that more than half of the deaths are men between the ages of 20 and 40, with only 5% of police deadly shootings involving women over the past five years. Brianna Taylor is one of those 5% of women, one of those statistics. And while Chicago is often referred to as the murder capital of America, it turns out that New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Alaska have the most homicides by police in the nation year after year. And all this brings us to three incidents of police violence against black men in that age bracket in the headlines this past week. It is only by the grace of God his military training, and his own cool head that Lieutenant Karen Nazario is alive to file a civil rights lawsuit against the town of Windsor, Virginia. 
It turns out that Lieutenant Nazario is not the first victim of what it, who is now a fired Windsor cop. Lonnie Wright and Adam Toledo, also in the news this week, were not so fortunate. All three of these incidents have happened or been disclosed or had impact during the murder trial of Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis for the killing of George Floyd on May 25, 2020. A death documented by a horrified 17-year-old with a cell phone. Nine minutes and 42 seconds of video as bystanders plead with the officers to stop, to render aid, sparking a summer of peaceful and not so peaceful demonstrations and marches where people of all races and ages defied a pandemic to proclaim that black lives matter. The interest in the Chauvin case resulted in the unusual decision to allow television cameras to record an entire trial as it was unfolding. But the judge in the Superior Court of the state of Minnesota decided the public interest, as well as socially distant limited seats in the courtroom required that this trial be broadcast. I haven't watched all of it. I've watched a few of the high points that someone referred to, but I've watched enough to say, I wouldn't need to pack a big bag for days long sequestering of that jury if I were on that jury, because Chauvin is guilty of murder. It's open and shut. That said, the future case of Officer Kim Potter, a 26-year veteran of the Brooklyn Center, Minnesota Police Department, a mother of two, is very different. Yes, they're geographically proximate. And yes, the killing of Lonnie Wright was not justified by any means. But the two cases are quite different. Lonnie Wright was a 20-year-old father of a two-year-old. He was stopped for a traffic violation. And in the process of that traffic violation, he was found to have an outstanding misdemeanor warrant, which subjected him to arrest. And he resisted being arrested. Potter, who was acting as a training officer on that day, appears based on the body cam video to have thought she was going to tase this resisting, and I put it in quotes, offender, see my air quotes, offender. <clears throat> well, so she said tase, tase, but she fired her gun instead. And young Lonnie, after being shot, continued to run from the police, crashing a short time later. Had he not continued to run, is it possible, even remotely possible, that life-saving aid could have been rendered in those first crucial seconds? That would clearly be a question asked in the ongoing investigation. You know, what was Lonnie Wright's culpability in his own death? Officer Potter has resigned from the force, been charged with second-degree manslaughter. That's an initial charge. It may change. 
She's been arrested, booked, and is out on bail. She's made her first court appearance. Police officers I spoke to this week found it difficult to understand how Officer Potter thought she was holding her taser, when in fact it was her gun. The taser is carried on the left side of the duty belt, known as the weak side, and the Glock pistol is normally carried on the right side of the belt, the strong side. Specifically, that's done, you know, very specifically. It's done so that in a high stress situation, the officer does not make a fatal mistake. The difference, those police officers I spoke with also said, the difference in the weight of the two tactical weapons is significant. The taser is quite light and it's usually light in color, usually yellow, so that it's very distinct to the officer that it is not their gun. Even more profound, the officers I spoke with pointed out was the failure of the so-called field training officer, Officer Potter, to try to de-escalate the situation. Why didn't she tell the officer that she was training to let Lonnie go? They had his name, his address, and his license number. He wasn't going anywhere. He could have been arrested on that warrant at any later date you know, at home where it wasn't dangerous. You know, he could have been mailed a ticket because what we had was an expired registration. So you mail him a ticket. This was definitely a death that did not have to happen, that should not have happened. But at the same time, one cannot compare this split second decision, this split second mistake. But at the same time, it can't be compared to Derek Chauvin's actions. It, it wasn't nine minutes and 42 seconds. It was two seconds. The case of Adam Toledo of Chicago is even more heartrending. At 2.30 a.m. on March 29th, the middle of the night, Police were dispatched to a shots fired call in a dense urban Chicago neighborhood. Two males ran from the responding officers and those officers gave chase. One got away. The other, young Adam, was chased into an alley by one of the officers who gave the command to stop and raise your hands, which Adam did. The, officer, the officer's body camera footage shows Adam holding a gun, throwing the gun aside as he's raising his hands. And yes, the gun was found. The officer's bullet was already flying when the gun was thrown. And a 13-year-old child was dead at the scene. Young Adam was dead despite immediate calls from the officer for an ambulance and his attempts at CPR. There's a funny thing about Adam's gun in his hand. ABC News shows the full video clearly showing the gun in Adam's hand. Now this is the officer's body cam video. So you see, in the ABC News showing 
what the officer saw. But Rachel Maddow's show on CN on MSNBC that same evening omitted that tiny fragment because showing the gun didn't tell the story that guest host Ali Velchi wanted to tell. What do all of these situations have in common? One thing, fear. A fear of the unknown every cop confronts every single day on the job. Even though most never draw their weapon in an entire career. John Micklethwaite and Adrian Wooldridge point out in their recent book, The Wake Up Call, why the pandemic has exposed the West and how to fix it. They say, and I'm going to quote, America is a heavily armed country where guns kill 40,000 people a year. The police are terrified of being shot. Most of the people they shoot have guns, end of that quote. Because the officers I spoke with are people I know in the community, I know that that fear is very real. When I broached the proposition that's been bandied about by the press and politicians who suggest that police on traffic patrol should not be armed, the, my friend's reaction is swift and unanimous. If such a proposition were to become law, every police officer on the beat would quit. Fact is that domestic violence calls and traffic stops are the most common causes of police deaths. Clearly, fear cannot be an excuse for a law enforcement officer taking the life of any civilian he or she has reason to engage. But it is a fact that must be dealt with to stop the police on civilian carnage. By coincidence, at the same time I'm reading Wake Up Call, I've also been reading retired four-star Admiral William McRaven's Sea Stories, which chronicles his career as a Navy SEAL, including a chapter on the death of Osama bin Laden, a raid he led. When President Obama raised his concern about women and children in the Abbottabad compound where the CIA believed it had located bin Laden, McRaven writes that he was able to reassure the president unnecessary civilian casualties would be avoided. Saying these men, in other words, the SEALs who were going to conduct the raid, are experienced, they are trained, they can distinguish threats from non-threats in a second. And the mission proved his point. No women or children were injured in this raid. They were in fact left in the compound for Pakistani authorities to deal with. Thus, training and training standards, even hiring standards vary between the 18,000 separate local law enforcement agencies in the United States. And while the George Floyd Policing Act doesn't solve all of these problems, it does attempt to codify some of the principles of improved training that might avoid these unnecessary deaths. By establishing police training standards alone, you can't ensure that in the moment, and these events normally have seconds in them, not minutes, 
that the training is going to overcome the flight or fight instinct we all have. It was that fight, flight or fight instinct that resulted in the deaths of Lonnie Wright and Adam Toledo and Breonna Taylor and too many more to list at this moment. The difference between Navy SEALs and local police is not just the danger they experience. It is not just the rigor of their initial training and selection process. It is the frequency of their training. Navy SEALs don't just sit around the wardroom waiting for the call to a mission. They train every day. They rehearse their missions. They retrain. They never stop training. That way, when there is live fire, their fear is overcome by their confidence in their training, and they can make good decisions in split seconds. Police officer training should not be go to the academy, get one and done. It should be constant, it should be rigorous, and it should be determinative. If you fail your retraining, you get reassigned, you get re-retrained, or you get replaced. Of course, not all the 18,000 local police departments have enough personnel to keep officers on the beat and continuously train at the same time. So is one of the things that should be considered the consolidation of small suburban departments into their larger urban neighbors or county sheriff's forces as an alternative that offers a better combination of sufficient manpower on patrol and recurring training of the force. Consolidation of smaller forces into sheriff's departments provides cost-effective, well-trained police forces in many California counties. It's not perfect, but it is better than the current mismatch of training and performance common to too many small and medium-sized police departments around the country. And then there is the bad cop. Not every cop who wears a badge and carries a gun should have either. Too often, police departments don't act soon enough, if at all, against officers with too many excessive force complaints. The case with both the now-fired Windsor Virginia officer who pulled over Lieutenant Nazario and Derek Chauvin. There are also excessive force charges in the Chicago case, but none of those were ever established. In other words, none of those were found to be true. Bad cops should not just be fired. There has to be a national database of officers fired for bad conduct to prevent them from being hired elsewhere. As we've seen in the Chauvin murder trial, what was, what was once an ironclad blue wall is now crumbling. It was, it's crumbling even before the George Floyd Policing Act becomes law, if indeed it can get through both houses of Congress and be passed and signed by President Biden. And whatever happens to Officer Potter in the legal system, we, should her pension be protected from the family of Lonnie Wright? Should only the taxpayers of Brooklyn Center be liable for the preventable death of Lonnie Wright? 
I don't think so. Would police officers who knew they'd be personally, civilly liable be so quick to pull the trigger? The George Floyd Policing Act places limits on the doctrine of qualified immunity that protects individual police officers from fiscal liability for acts that they perform. Would Would this be an inhibitor? I would think so. But one thing that the George Floyd Act does not do that I believe should be done is to place limits on awards that victims' families can receive from hard-pressed municipal governments. Two men who have gotten rich at the microphones of righteousness since the killing of Trayvon Martin are Benjamin Crump and the Reverend Al Sharpton. As A follows B follows C, Mr. Crump is always the first to arrive at the bereaved side to begin negotiations with the city, of which he takes half. I don't diminish the anger or the agony of any such parent, but Mr. Crump's efforts are less about systematic fixes than litigious paydays. $27 million to George Floyd's family means no new sewers in Minneapolis for many years. And it isn't $27 million going to the bereaved family. It's probably less than $13 million, plus ongoing management fees, the rest going to Crump and his partners. And last but not least, the parents of both Lonnie Wright and Adam Toledo need to look in the mirror and wonder what they could have done differently that might have saved their children's lives. Why didn't Lonnie Wright's parents make sure he took care of his misdemeanor gun possession charge before they gave him a new car? No warrant, no attempted arrest, no flight, no gun, just a silly traffic ticket. Even more acutely, in the case of Adam Toledo, what was a 13-year-old doing on the streets of Chicago at 2.30 in the morning rather than at home with his mother asleep in his bed. March 29th was a Monday. Didn't Adam have school the next day? Every death at the hands of a police officer, a peacekeeper, is a tragedy. And while the George Floyd Policing Act contains some common sense reforms, resulting from lessons we should have learned a long time ago, and the Department of Justice remedial actions when warranted were evidence proves a pattern of malevolence on the part of a police department over a long period of time. Well, the bottom line remains a societal problem where there is mutual distrust. And where there is mutual distrust, no amount of money, no laws can solve the problem. But time, a committed community dialogue, learning from our experience and thus developing better hiring profiles and testing for potential police officers and improved and more reinforced training and an end to the blue wall could make a difference year over year.
Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.